0: Now, in past days, believers talked about heaven and thought about heaven, motivated with heaven. So much so that the enemies would call them, they are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. You probably heard that. I heard it in, in days past. Which prompted C.S. Lewis to write the following in response to the enemies of the cross. He said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. I want to say amen belongs here. Sadly and tragically, very little preaching on heaven today. Most preaching today is focused on this life, the problems of this life, uh, the difficulties of this life, the blessings of this life, the enjoying of this life, the, uh, the getting the most out of this life. As a matter of fact, there are very few songs written about heaven, and as I I said to the early congregation, Aaron Keyes is really an exception that I've seen him writing songs about heaven, even as a young man. For, for that I'm very grateful. Today's church is caught up in our society's mad pursuit for instant gratification, narcissistic indulgences. And yet, here's the truth, genuine longing for heaven can truly make this life more wonderful than you can imagine. And putting the emphasis on this life never gives you joy. It's the opposite. One of the problems of the theory, your best life is now, is it's so addictive. It really is. It's like salt water. The more you drink it, the more you want to drink it. Never satisfied, never contented. Never joyful, really, in the truest sense of the word. Uh, The more we focus our attention on this life, the more meaningless life becomes. And so what happens, because of this addictive nature uh, of that focus on this life, we want more and more and more. So we wait for these motivational preachers, not the ones who preach the Word of God, but the ones who are going to pat us on the back and say, Let's add a boy keep being positive. We wait for the next book, and we hang on everywhere. It's it's addictive. I wish people get addicted to the Word of God, like they get addicted to these motivational preachers. Because true heavenly-mindedness by far makes this life more meaningful, more joyful, more fulfilling than anything you can think of. Focusing on heaven is the surest indication of true salvation. Jesus said, where your treasure is, and this is not just money, all your treasures, whatever you value, whatever your treasure, where your treasure is, that's your heart also. Focus on heaven produces godly characteristics and transformed life here and now. Focus on heaven brings joy and comfort in the midst of the trials of life. Focus on heaven and heaven's glory makes us able to endure anything that this life throws at us. Focus on heaven will make you view pain and suffering and difficulties of this life to be a mere passing passage. Focusing on heaven help us to persevere against sin and against temptation. Focusing on heaven will give you a genuine motivation to serve the Lord with all of your heart in the here and now. Focusing on heaven honors God who is in heaven. In fact, the Bible mentions heaven 500 times. In the book of Revelation al- alone, is mentioned 50 times. Please turn with me as we look at heaven in the book of Revelation. These are chapters 4 and 5, and chapters 21 and 22. Because these images are repeated, and that's why I'm summarizing it today in this one message, four chapters. God, in his graciousness, (laughs) he takes John... and privileges him, and show him what heaven will be like, that eternal heaven. Why? So that we would not be apprehensive about heaven, but rather be excited about it, look forward to it. No, we're not living in fear and and doubt, but we're living in joy. Which reminded me, actually, I was thinking about this in a, a story that I heard a long time ago. Obviously, it's not a true story about this old couple who died and went to heaven. And as this man, uh, the man kept looking around and, and he was absolutely gawking and wow, look at this, look at this. And he just saw how beautiful heaven is, how wonderful heaven is. He looked at his wife and he said, Mildred, if I knew how beautiful heaven is, I wouldn't have eaten all that oatmeal you're giving me every day. <laughs> Eat your (laughs) oatmeal. You see, when you read about the new heaven and the new earth and its new capital city, the new Jerusalem, (laughs) you will be lifted so high above the problems of this life. You will soar above all the difficulties that you may face. Today, some of you may have walked in here, and I don't know, only you know, some of you will probably walked in here carrying a stone piano on your back. And whether it is a load of guilt, or it's a load of suffering and sin, or whether it's a, a load of worrying about the future, or, 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 whether it is a breaking heart over the loss of loved ones, and whatever the burdens that you're carrying, whatever is weighing you down, I pray to God that these four chapters in the book of Revelation are going to make you soar to the very doors of heaven itself. Amen. I'll say it for you. <laughs> Look with me at the first two verses of chapter 4. In the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own, it's page nineteen seventeen. John said, I looked and there before me was an, a door standing open in heaven. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Beloved, let me tell you at the outset, this is not a throne like a piece of furniture that you see the monarchs of the earth sitting on. That is not what it is. This throne is a symbol of the power and the strength and the authority and the God being in control of everything. The good news is when you decide to take yourself off the throne of your heart, And put the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart. He comes in with power. He comes with strength. He comes in with might. He comes in to take over and give you joy in the midst of difficulties. And the book of Revelation shows us that the throne of God is that fixed center of the universe. The throne of God is that immovable point of reference uh, for all times and space. Uh, It's like the North Star. You know how the North Star always guided the navigators in the sea? The the throne of God is that place of authority and power and strength. It's the centrality of all that is. It is the center of his rule of the universe. And I want you to remember this. Every time you see the news and you think things are out of control, that he's in control. He's never sitting there with a bottle of my lantern and said, Oh my, what am I going to do? There's something you need to know about the way the Bible talks about heaven. The Bible talks about three heavens. Three heavens. The first heaven the Bible talks about is the domain of Satan, where Satan dwells. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly (laughs) That is the first heaven. That's the domain of Satan. And praise God, when Jesus returns, that is the first thing he's going to destroy. The second heaven is the stellar heaven, which uh, we call the universe. Um, you see those pictures and photographs that comes, uh, taken by the Hubble Space uh, Telescope. That's the second heaven. But the third heaven sometimes is referred to as Paradise. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul was privileged to be taken into that third heaven. He saw things he can't even describe, he couldn't verbalize, but to make it worse, God said to him, you are not allowed to talk about this. And he said, I was not permitted to even talk about it. But the third heaven is not the future heaven. It's not the eternal heaven. You see, the moment a believer dies. The moment we die, we go to the third heaven where Jesus is now. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, it says absence from the body is present with the Lord. But the third heaven is not the eternal heaven. The third heaven is not the new heaven that John was privileged to see in the book of Revelation. God took him and let him see the eternal heaven, the ultimate heaven, the new heaven. You see... I I have to chuckle every time I see one of those folks who supposedly died and went to heaven and came back and wrote a book and made millions of dollars. You know, I I honestly, I just have to chuckle. I said, who would buy a book like this? Surely we got everything we need here about the eternal heaven. Thank God one of them fessed up up, and he said that it was all made up. It's all fake. (laughs) After he sold all the millions of copies. His name is Malachi. (laughs) Think about that. His real name. But thank God, at least somebody, I pray that they all repent and turn and and tell us the truth, that they made it all up. (laughs) Even if they did die and and go somewhere, someplace, it couldn't be possibly the eternal heaven that John the Revelator was privileged to see. (laughs) This is unique. This is to the man of God. This is the disciple of Jesus, whom Jesus loved. And in Revelation chapter 4, John sees a great high priest, Jesus, our great high priest, having the appearance of jasper and uh, uh, carnelian. What is that? Well, the jasper is a diamond-like white stone, and it symbolizes the glory of Jesus. The carnelian is a blood red stone symbolizing the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And these two stones were worn by the high priest in the Old Testament. These stones symbolize the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And surrounding the throne is a rainbow. Which is a reminder of God's faithfulness. You remember back in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, and God saved Noah and the ark. And then he said, this rainbow is a sign of my faithfulness that I will not destroy the earth by flood again. But when you and I see a rainbow, we see half a circle. Have any of you seen a full circle rainbow? Because I want to talk to you afterwards. But what John sees in that eternal heaven is he sees a full circle rainbow, and it is encircling the throne of God. Why? Because it tells us that God is eternal, and he has no beginning, and he has no end. When we get to heaven, we're going to see Jesus, our great high priest. The high priest does two things. He offers intercessions on behalf of the people, and he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. And Jesus did both in his own body. Think about this. Even at this moment, as Aaron reminded us just a few moments ago, just where you're sitting or wherever you are watching, this very moment, Jesus is interceding on your behalf with the Father. Can you get that? He is our great high priest. Not the saints. They can't intercede for us. They can't hear us. Not the blessed virgin, as we honor and respect her. But she can't intercede for us. Only Jesus intercedes on our behalf with the Father. That's what's very clear in the Scripture. He is the high priest. And if you really want to get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing as our high priest interceding with the Father, go home and read chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. It gives you a glimpse of of that high priestly prayer. When he prayed on behalf of the disciples, he even prayed on our behalf back then. He said, I don't pray only for them, but for those who also will come and believe in me. That is how our high priest is interceding. But the Bible also said that we are priests. We are priests. And what do we offer? God. Romans 12 tells us that we offer God our bodies for the Holy Spirit to indwell in our bodies, surrender to him our natural desires and our sins, that we die daily to sin, we offer our bodies to be used for the glory of Jesus. Amen belongs here. Amen. In Hebrews thirteen fifteen, said, we are to continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise. What does that mean? Singing a couple of songs on Sunday morning? Is that it? No, <laughs> that we live 24-7 reflecting the praise and the honor and the glory that is due to God. But there is another picture. I'm going to thank God that, uh, uh, that, that baby uh, saying amen because you're not saying it. That baby <laughs> said it. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, wherever you are. Then Jesus say something about the stones. <laughs> will praise me if you don't. <laughs> There's another picture of this eternal heaven I don't want you to miss. It's a magnificent picture. It says around the throne, around the throne, the power and the authority of our God, there are 24 elders. Now you have to understand the whole book of Revelation, I've told you this before, I'll say it again. There are a lot of symbolism, and you've got to understand those symbolism in the context of the scripture. It's not, I make them up, but it's 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 what the scripture says. In fact, King David uh, ordained 20, brought 25 priests from the Levites to serve in the temple. But here the number 24 is symbolic. Symbolic of what? It represents the twelve tribes of Israel, that's the Old Testament, and the twelve disciples of Jesus, that's the New Testament. What's that mean? It means that in heaven, the heavenly church, when we all get to heaven, is going to be made up of saints from the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament believers looked forward... By faith, just like Abraham who anticipated the day of the coming of Christ, by faith not all of the Jews are going to be saved but those who looked forward by faith to the cross of Jesus Christ, they were saved and they are in heaven. Just like people though not everybody goes to church is going to be saved. And so in the New Testament we look back by faith at the cross and we are saved. And the saints from the Old and the New Testament together make up the church of Jesus Christ in heaven and we all going to bow to him, represented in those 24 elders. Listen, in the midst of this awesome scene, yes, awesome. You can say awesome with me. Yeah. Not all the other stuff, but this This is really an awesome scene. (laughs) Sometimes I close my eyes and I visualize it. It's it's a visible demonstration of the power of God. How? From the throne came flashes of lightning and rolling of of thunder. But we also see the seven torches of fire. What are they? They represent The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, Michael, how do you know that? Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible lists all the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. What are they? His comforting presence, His wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And when you and I yield to the Holy Spirit and surrender to the Holy Spirit to reign and rule in our lives, He produces these characteristics in us. And the next image that John gives us is that of the Sea of Crystal, verse 6 of chapter 4. The Sea of Crystal symbolizes the truth of the Word of God. Please listen to me. And I'm not pointing fingers, and I'm telling you the truth. And the reason Satan works overtime to keep believers from reading and heeding and obeying the Word of God is because the Word of God is pure. It is purifying, it cleanses, it sanctifies. The reason so many preachers gave it up and resorted to Pop psychology is because the Word of God is pure and powerful. God's truth is so vast and so pure like the great sea of crystal. That's what John is saying here. But you know, Satan is a counterfeiter. He really is. He doesn't have a creative bone in his body. He he just takes truth and twists it. It's like the liberals, you know, in the last several hundred years. What do they do? Godly people like John Harvard and yale and, and 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 these godly people found institutions, what do they do? They come and steal them. <laughs> they do they don 't create anything they just steal the stuff that's what Satan takes truth from the word of God and he twists it and he gives it a twist and he turns it into a lie. Satan takes the truth about the crystal. In heaven, symbolizing the purity of the truth of the Word of God. And he turns it into a deceptive pseudoscience called crystal power. Have you heard that? Crystal healing? Have you heard that? I know you did. (laughs) I hope none of you are doing that. See, crystal has no power in itself. Crystal can do you any good at all. It is merely a symbol of the purity of the Word of God. (laughs) I'll move on, because I think I'm stepping on some toes here. But look at the worship in heaven. John describes the four angelic creatures who have many eyes. That is symbolizing their involvement in the judgment of God. Remember how many times when Jesus said, well, send the angels, they're going to get the wheat, and they're going to get the chaff, and they're going to separate them. The angels are going to be involved in the judgment, and that's why they have too many eyes. And those many eyes are symbolizing that they will be be fast and furious, and they will execute judgment. The cherubim and the seraphim are constantly proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, please hear me right on this one. That does not mean that in heaven we will be singing how great thou art 20,000 times a day. As some people like to think, and, and as a man, the heaven will be boring. No, 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 no. That, that's not what it means. And today, if I can accomplish one thing, listen to me. If I accomplish one thing, I pray that I can help clear away some of misconceptions about heaven from the word of god not i don't have a single opinion you see so many of these misconceptions are planted by satan the enemy of your soul he planted those misconceptions no wonder jesus called satan liar and the father of lies and the one thing satan constantly lies about is heaven later in the book of revelation chapter 13 we're going to meet the beast The Antichrist, the one who is actually the human embodiment of Satan himself. This beast is going to pretend to be a Christian so that he can deceive a lot of non-discerning people. He will claim to be Christian, but later on he'll blaspheme God's name and God's dwelling place, which is heaven. Why does Satan lie about heaven? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does he lie about it? Why does he actually bring dread in the life of some saved people about heaven? I'm going to tell you why. It's very important. Because Satan was thrown out of heaven. And when he was thrown out of heaven, he will never, 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 never get back again. He will never be allowed in there. And that is why he hates God and he hates us. Why? Because we're going there and he's not. And so every time he comes out, goes after you, he said, hey, I'm going to heaven and you're not. Na, 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 na. You can do that. You can taunt Satan. It's all right. That's why he distorts the image of heaven. He lies about it. And make believers afraid of death, and afraid of this, and afraid of this, and live in fear, and constantly worried? The Bible said in Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things where? Come on, give me a big one. What do you spend most of your day doing? Setting your mind on What? Navel-gazing. He said, look up. We look down. I got problems. We all got problems. And yet Satan wants us continuously to focus on this life. And he distorts the truth about heaven. Think about this. Think about some of the most wonderful creation of God that you've ever seen in your life, anywhere in the world. Whether it be Yosemite Park or, or Grand Canyon or, or, or Niagara Falls, or any, any of those awesome sites that God created. I want you to imagine with me that the God who created these wonderful things gonna make heaven to be boring? Hello? No! In fact, these breathtaking sites don't hold a candle to what God prepared in heaven. Have you ever wondered why we live in this universe surrounded by billions and billions and billions of, of, of galaxies and, and stars? How would you be, would like to be able to explore the whole universe without any physical limitation? Hello. You're getting closer. Not only that, but in the new heaven and the new earth, the God of power and might will be there all the time, personally, physically, literally. <laughs> and that's what it means by being continuously worshiping Him, praising Him, adoring Him, praising, faith- thanking Him, delighting ourselves in Him, because He is literally there with us. And Paul said, No eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. You know, beloved, when Jesus hung on that cross and his blood dripped, and I talked about this when, he, when, when John was talking about how the blood of Christ cleanses us. When he died on that cross, he did not die for angels. If you got that, say amen. amen. He did not die for angels. He died for you and me, That daughters and the sons of Adam and Eve. That's who he died for. And if the angels for whom Jesus did not die are praising him day and night, can you imagine what we're going to do? The Presbyterians are going to have a hard time there. (laughs) Sorry, brother. (laughs) Just think, how much more we're constantly going to bless and honor, praise the Lord, who died for us, who redeemed us, who saved us, who forgave us our sins, who gave us everything we have. You are worthy, O oh Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Amen. We'll get you thawing yet. Chapter 21, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. This will be a startling church change for us from this earthly life, from the current life. You see, on the earth, and it's the only planet really that has three quarters of it, at least give or take, three quarters water and one quarter land. The sea is emblematic of the presence of water-based environment. All of life on earth is dependent on water for surviving. The earth is the only known place in the universe where there was sufficient water to sustain life. You notice sometimes when they send these robots to Mars and other places, and the first thing they're looking for is what? Water. Because they want to know if there was a life there, if there was a life there or not. But they're always looking for water. Why? Because water would tell them if there was life at some point or not. Without water, uh, any planet cannot be inhabited. But believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they receive their glorified body, I'm really getting ready to shout. <laughs> when, we receive, when we receive the glorified body, we will not need water to survive. Unlike our current bodies that is made 60% water, In the new heaven and the new earth, life will be based on completely different life principle than the present universe. I mean, just like astronauts, when they went to the moon, they had to wear a different suit. When we go there, we will have a suit, but it's not a suit. It's going to be us, a glorified body. And there will be a river in heaven, in the new heaven, all right, but but the river... Is not the river of water, but it's the water of life. Now, there are some theologians have speculated that this was also uniquely important to John, the revelator. Chris, think about this with me. The water, the Mediterranean water, stood guard over John's prison in Potomus. Separating him from his loved ones in Ephesus. And that is why he said there was no longer any sea in the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, there will be no separation between him and his loved ones. There will be no separation. Listen to me. Death separates us now, but there will never be separation in heaven we will be united for eternity. John sees our separation from our loved ones, uh, this death, as one of the evil things. And, and sure, death is, is an enemy and does separate us. But we no longer fear it because it will not separate us forever. It will only temporarily separate us. And then he says other th- six things that also will be no more in heaven. Death, mourning, weeping, pain, curse... And dark nights. None of these things will be in the new heaven and the new earth. Please listen to this because John also said, I did not see a temple in that new capital city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. There was no temple. No temple. You say, why? Why Why? there was no temple? Listen carefully. God asked the people of Israel to build the temple for a reason. It is a symbol of his presence among his people. It's only symbolic. It's a symbol. And when the real thing is there, why do you want the symbol? (laughs) Why do we need the symbol? Why do we need the representation? Because God is going to be in our midst. That holy city John saw, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth, and the dimension of it actually is described in chapter 21, verse 16. Many theologians have calculated them, and and it's it's a vast, vast, vast city. But remember, when John was writing these words, that was in the early 90s. Not the 1990s, the 90s. A.D., where was the earthly Jerusalem at that time? What kind of condition was it in? It was destroyed. Twenty-five years earlier, just as Jesus predicted, year 70 A.D., the Romans came, and they did not leave a stone on top of the other. And God said, don't worry about the earthly Jerusalem, John, because the new Jerusalem is going to be absolutely fantastic Awesome. Can you say awesome? Awesome. All right. The new Jerusalem is going to be different from the current city of Jerusalem. It's not a surprise to you. I love Jerusalem. I love visiting in Israel. I love being in Jerusalem. I have many friends there, and I love the place. But at best, it's shot with sin and pain and suffering. But when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem will descend to the earth from heaven. Heaven's capital city. He said, it will come down adorned like a bride for the bridegroom. Why? Because it will house the bride of Christ. (laughs) All of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us have received him as Savior and Lord. We are the bride of Christ. And we will be in that new Jerusalem. Now this is a picture, I think, for those of you who have not noticed, it's a picture of a Jewish wedding. You know, a Jewish wedding has three stages. The first stage is the betrothal. And the betrothal is like our engagement, but it's binding. It's, it's, it's like a contract. It, it's, it, you know, Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other. God the Father betrothed us to his son. That's what you call a prearranged marriage. Hello? When did he do that? Do you know when he did that? Do you know when he arranged that marriage? Before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> you've been spoken for. And you've been, you belong to him. He chose you. You did not choose him. He chose you. He called you out. He predestined you. He brought you to himself. He made you to be the bride of Christ. The second stage is the Presentation. It's a time of celebration and feasting leading up to an actual wedding ceremony. And it will take place during our rapture when we are raptured from this earth. And then comes the third stage. And that's the ceremony itself which is described as the great supper of the Lamb. And will be stretched, beloved, for eternity. You know, in the Middle East, depending on the Financial ability of the father of the groom. Oh yes, the father of the groom pays for the wedding in the Middle East. That's why the father of the groom cries at wedding, not the <laughs> not the father of the bride. The father of the groom cries because he pays for it. Well, if he is well to do, re- reasonably well to do, he will have a three-day celebration. If he's really, really wealthy, It could go on for seven days, sometimes even 14 days. If he is a king, that celebration would go on for weeks and weeks. So think about our rich king, heavenly father. This celebration is going to go on for eternity. Amen. Amen. Give God praise. Give God praise. Don't pray for me. Pray for God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. But here's the best part. Here's the best part about heaven. Chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or the old order of things has passed away. The first thing a believer is going to experience is Jesus wiping the tears off our faces. What does that mean? Are we going to be arriving in heaven? Sad and crying our eyes out, and, and Jesus is going to pat us on the back and said, there, there, there. No, no, that's not what it means when he talks about wiping uh, the tears of, of our eyes. But God wants us to know that in heaven there will be absence of Sorrow in heaven, that there will be no sadness and grief in heaven. There will be no disappointment and hurt in heaven. That there will be no tears of misfortune in heaven. There will be no tears of loss of loved ones in heaven. There will be no tears of regret any more and remorse in heaven. There will be no sin or temptation in heaven. There will be no Satan to harass us in heaven. There will be no betrayal of friends in heaven. Even so, come Lord Jesus.